ladies and gentlemen, it is the 1st of June, pinch, punch, first day of the month, and if it has, if June is half as good as May, we're in for a pretty decent summer, I believe. You know what's Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I mean, I don't know about you. Like, you know, obviously everyone has different, you know, lives. But man, May was good. May was really good. I can't. I can't. I already, you know, reflect on a month in that way. You know, what I mean, I'm just like, was this month good or? Um, most of the time you immediately just uh, have a crap start to a month and you're just like, okay, this ain't going to get any bell. <laughs> Throw it all in the bin. Um, but yeah, man, it was good. You know what I mean? I got some work in, got that done. Um, at the time, I was supposed to get it done and uh, I generally thought I wouldn't, uh, literally until the day before. But it got done. And, um, you know, I've just spent this past few days well a week pretty much um just uh just just chilling and uh you know just uh going out touching grass and uh just um and just living in that sense you know what i mean um and I, even during the month right you know obviously you have my birthday and then uh after that i saw ari lennox and that was amazing and then this past weekend has just been outstanding just uh, everything just went well and uh yeah just really enjoying myself you know i mean i went to went to raven row um like i covered something last month the uh june giovanni uh, pan-african cinema archive went there um for a few hours uh watched a couple of documentaries there and there were just so many names and so much so much um it, it it really was just a portal to a world that, you know, I'm just scratching the surface of, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure whether I'll, you know, be fully in it, um, but I hope to be one day in some fashion and uh, contribute to it hopefully one day. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. I went, I went, one of the documentaries was um, a, I forgot, I didn't see, I didn't catch the name. I think I... I probably took a picture of it, um, of the, you know, placard that gives the information, but um, it was basically a documentary um, about the Angolan independence, uh, just, yeah, it was just um, interviewing people within Angolan independence and how they fought for it and how, um, and talking about noble names and uh, people that died, obviously, for it, and even the aftermath of them winning it and actually gaining independence and then kind of just, um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, fighting again, but independently, but they're just fighting over themselves, right? It's a very fascinating thing. Um, and you d- you don't see those kind of films anywhere else. You really don't. And uh, the reason why, you know, stuff like archiving is so important is because of these things, of these stories that are told and these stories don't 
they're not being shown at the Odeon. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And um, they're not being shown, and someone has to someone has to preserve. Someone has to have an archive. And uh, lucky for us, um, the likes of June Giovanni um, are doing that, and are putting in that work. And uh, you know, you have the opportunity to see it. Um, so yeah, really enjoyed uh, my time there. After that, same day, I went to Arrested Development. Uh, see Arrested Development um, at the Jazz Cafe, and it was one of my favourite shows there um, so far. And that's saying something since I've been there so often. Um, but yeah, it was just really amazing. Um, shout to Speech, who's pushing 55, and his vocals are still just top tier. Shout out to April and Farida, who were with uh, with him uh, on the backing vocals, and them both of them, in their own way, were just amazing and really elevated the show and shout out to the whole band as well. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just fascinating how a a group that is, you know, kind of had members come and go, but the ethos remains the same, the vibes remain the same, and it's so consistent. And um, yeah, I just really enjoy myself there. And then on Sunday, went across the tracks, um, saw some amazing eyes, some that I've been wanting to see for a long, long time. Um, you know, Chelsea Carmichael, amazing sax, uh, sax, is it saxophonist or saxophonist? I, forget, I keep forgetting how to <laughs> say it. <laughs> um, Yasmin Lacey, um, she was really good at the mainline stage. Uh, Emma V, Blues Project, Bina, uh, Live with an E dot E, uh, Addy Oasis, Masego, and obviously No Worries with uh, Anderson Pack and uh, Knowledge. It was just really enjoyable, and um, I got photos of all of them in some fashion. Um, I'm literally after I record this, I'm going to continue editing and hopefully get that done today as I record on Wednesday, and uh, have it, you know, ready for you guys um, to have a look if you want to um, on Friday. Um, hit up uh, CRT Photography dot com if you want to go peep. Um, yeah, man, just really looking forward to dropping those photos. Um, I really got some good, really got some good stuff there. Um, great people, great vibes, and um, yeah, just um, I love across, I love, I love across the tracks, man. I really do. Like the past two years I've been have just been um, fascinating in both in both instances, and uh, just seen some really good music and uh, just some really good vibes all over, all around. So uh, shout out to. Shout out to uh, everyone involved on that front. Um, but yeah, man, just been chilling this week. Um, not even chilling. I'm trying to just uh, just just get the photography out of the way and uh, get you know some personal work out of the way uh, before I continue um, on more professional uh, more professional things. Um, I mean, this is professional. Who who we can? Uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, but yeah, we have a show to do. So let's jump right in. Uh, we have an environment. Uh, life and two art topics uh, to get into. So with that said, formatties before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes as well as the music for the show and also podcasts under the 5 EPN. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where Tina Turner dies aged 83, uh, Ron DeSantis confirms he's running for US presidency, uh, Erdogan uh, wins the Turkish presidential runoff, 
Uh, Chipmaker NVIDIA cracks 1 trillion in market value and a large-scale drone attack uh, hits Moscow, uh, which, um, yeah, that's going to be interesting how that, how that, how that response uh, comes through. But let's uh, get into this uh, first, the, the environments. And um, you know, I've always been this person, right, where I consider recycling just like the bare minimum, right? You, if you, if I mean, if you live in the UK anyway, you know, you know about the pink recycling bags and uh, you know just um, and just general recycling, right? Put the plastic bottles in this hole, put the general waste in the other hole, and life moves on, right? And I never really think about it, you know, too deeply. And I just always thought that recycling plastic, especially recy- plastic recycling, was just um, you know the least we could all do, you know what I mean? Just a bare minimum, at least recycle the shit, right? Um, but apparently that's not even good either. <laughs> for years I've been thinking this, for probably, you know, decades, right? When, I forget when uh, plastic recycling and pink recycling bags came in, but I remember being very young when it came in. Um, so it's been at least, uh, let's just say 20 years. And um, yeah, apparently it's, 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 it's whack. <laughs> it's it's, it's it's doing more harm than we realise, basically. And that's part of the title here. Um, this is by James Dyke, environmental columnist uh, for uh, the I newspaper. And it's simply called Recycled Plastic. He's doing more harm than we realise. So what's the alternative? Which I'm happy about. The, the fact that he's got an alternative to throw out. Because, you know, I don't like articles like this when, you know, they're just um, highlighting an issue and don't have a solution for it. You know, I'd like a solution for it. Just so we can all logically just, you know, either critique it or, you know, support that um so let's jump right and see what happens for many of us doing the recycling is now a normal part of housekeeping we separate our paper glass and tins before putting them in the green bin okay well green bin there you go green somewhere in other places increasingly plastics have the recycling logo on them so we rinse them out and save them uh, from general waste we know it's not much but it's better than doing nothing but recent studies on the environmental and health impacts of plastic recycling challenge that assumption. Research published in the Journal of Hazardous Materials Advances uh, found that a UK plastics recycling facility was releasing up to 13% of the plastic it recycles as microplastics. A microplastic is any, any plastic less than fi- 5 millimeters in diameter, with the vast majority of microplastics being much smaller, a tiny fraction of the width of a human hair. A single facility... Was that uh, that was the subject of this study discovered that at times it was releasing over 75 billion plastic microparticles in every cubic meter of wastewater. Being so small, microplastics are turning up everywhere. At the bottom of the deepest ocean, in Antarctic snowflakes, deep in our lungs, in our blood. What uh, was particularly worrying about the research on recycling facility was that it was one of the better managed recycling facilities, having installed costly microparticle filters. Most have not. Modern plastics contain over 13,000 different chemicals. Most of them derive from oil. Most of them, and many of them, are known to be hazardous to human health. And a review from Greenpeace USA finds that recycling can actually increase the toxicity of plastics. That's because the recycling process can concentrate chemicals such as flame retardants, benzene, and other cancer-producing and hormone-disruptive substances. Plastics can also absorb toxic materials. For example, a plastic container filled with pesticide can over time become contaminated as the, res- as the pesticide leaches into the plastic. Recycling that container then moves contaminated material into new plastic products, as well as releasing vast amounts of potentially highly toxic 
microplastic material particles sorry, into the environment. What these studies tell us is that recycling is not a solution. But then it never was, because recycling plastics means trying to modify materials that have been produced to resist change. It's their longevity and resilience that makes them such an attractive material. Recycling plastics could play a part in reducing pollution because it diverts waste that could up in the environment. Uh, that could up and I'm assuming the word end should be in there. Could could up in the environment, end up in the environment, such as the ocean. Uh, but there is a reason. It's the last R in reduce, reuse, recycle. Reusing plastics can keep them out of the waste and recycling system for longer, but reducing plastics must be the priority. Almost everything we buy includes or is wrapped in plastic. Plastics can serve an important role in protecting some products, but do we need plastic wrapped corn on the cob? I tried to go plastic free for a week after reviewing the avalanche of research clearly showing that plastic pollution was getting out of control. That meant any internet shopping or online groceries was out of the question. It also meant searching for alternatives to plastic-wrapped products in the supermarket. In 2019, UK supermarkets produced nearly 900,000 tonnes of plastic packaging, almost all of it ending up as waste. In order to reduce my environmental impact, I also tried to avoid dairy products, which is good because cheese, milk and yoghurt would have been off the menu as they all have plastic packaging. Breakfast cereal comes in a cardboard box, but it has a plastic in a bag. The apples I wanted only come in uh, come wrapped in plastic. Meat-free burgers were inside a plastic tray. The shopping trip became what felt like an endless and often futile attempt at finding a plastic-free alternative. This made me realise just how ubiquitous plastics are. We somehow managed to live without them before the 1950s. What happened? In a word, hyperconsumption. The creation of lifestyles built around buying things. Plastics are so cheap that we think nothing of using them once, then putting them straight in the bin. But being cheap doesn't mean there is no cost to such prolificate, prolificate, prolificate behaviour. Since the 1950s, 8.3 billion tons of plastics have been manufactured. 80% of that has ended up in landfill, or the environment, or inside of us. There are promising plant-based plastics that do not contain toxic substances, substances, don't know why I said that weird, uh, and break down quickly into harmless byproducts. But we cannot expect them to rapidly scale up production to meet today's almost insatiable demands. The only effective solution to the plastics problem is a rapid reduction in their use. Simply put, we need to consume far less plastic. This may come from realising that in manufacturing convenience, we have created an environmental and health crisis. I mean, yeah, I guess the, yeah, so the easy solution, right, is to just stop copying shit so often, right? Um, and, you know, I always think about that when I, you know, when I watch a video from, you know, tech YouTubers and they're doing, you know, just, uh, I bought a bunch of shit from Wish and I was like, is, is, is being a YouTuber just that, um, that inconsiderate where it's just like, yeah, let's just, for, for quote-unquote content, let's just buy the random shit. And then, you know, they what do they do with them afterwards? I always wonder that. I always ask that question to myself. What do they do with this random shit that they bought from Wish? You know what I mean? And I always, um, I always think about, you know, just shit from websites to know that people just comp from, like Wish, like Timu, which is a recent one, and, you know, another, another shit like that. Shein, for example, right, when it comes to clothing, right? buying all these cheap ass shit 
and uh, you know, and it's all wrapped in plastic and stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, I, I'm, you know, we're all culprits, right? I'm not saying I'm not a culprit at all, right? You know, I, I, I cop clothes now and again. You know, what I mean, I cop some shoes now and again, right? Um, but then again, uh, apart from what's probably in the shoes, um, I don't think there's any plastic packaging within, you know, the boxes and stuff. But then again, whatever, you know, it, it happens. Depending on where you shop, of course. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I can't imagine um, trying to do it when it comes to food. Um, I can't. I'm trying to think of like what's in my fridge right now, and it's just like I'm just thinking plastic, 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 plastic. This is all types of plastics. Um, I remember the there was an episode I did. I'm just gonna try and look it up right quick. Um, but there was an episode I did where it was just um, well, it was about microplastics, right? <laughs> Here we go, episode ninety-seven, uh, queuing on microplastics and media bias. Um, if you want to go spin that, uh, go for it. But yeah, it's just um, uh, the government recently announced that they're raising the price for plastic bags from te- five to ten p. And there was and I talked about an article: microplastics approves incremental changes are nowhere near enough. And it, it, it makes sense, right? It, it really makes sense, thinking about it now, that it's just raising the cost of plastic bags don't fucking help. Um, people just need to cop, you know, bags that aren't plastic and just use those. You know, get some tote bags, collect some tote bags. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's what I've done recently. Um, when I when I shop, I don't take plastic bags. I try, I try and... You know, if I have a bag, if I have to take a bag with me, I'll take something like a tote bag. But most of the time, I don't even bother carrying a bag because the stuff I buy on the day to day when I just go around the corner shop doesn't really need a bag. I'll just carry it myself. You know, what I mean, just carry them in my, you know, arms. You know, the things we have on our bodies that can carry shit. Let's just do that instead. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those um, topics that <sighs> seem very futile think- talking about. But um, you know. It's 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 something that I personally try and think about at least um, you know every day, and you can only do so much as an individual person. Um, at the end of the day, this is completely reliant on what governments do, um, and especially what governments do in uh, conjunction with corporations. And uh, you know, starting off with you know oil um, and uh, oil companies and stuff like that starting with those and working our way down. Uh, but, you know, that's, that requires relying on the government, um, which just as <laughs> as a four-word sentence, relying on the government uh, sounds completely idiotic to say. So, um, yeah. Are we fucked? Probably. Who knows? But um, as long as you keep doing your bit and having your conscience clear on that front, um, then... Uh, I guess at one, some point it's just going to come to a point where we have to just, um, you know, scream at the government. And, uh, yeah, hopefully that day comes pretty soon. So let's hop into one of two art segments I wanted to get into here. Um, and uh, this is one I found by The Guardian um, by Katie Hessel. Um, and it was just kind of, I don't know, it was kind of just one of those things where I'm just like, really, we're still doing this? Um, and it's, you know, easy called, it's 2023. Has it really taken until now for women artists to be given equal space? And, you know, I'm not really, I'm not uh, too deep into um, this 
you know, sculpting and, you know, exhibitions and stuff like that. You know, I've, I've obviously only st- only recently, in recent years, started to hit exhibitions. Um, but I haven't, I don't, I don't hear them constantly. Maybe a couple times a year. Um, you know, I've hit Raven Row twice now. I've been to Sachi Gallery twice. So there you go, that's four in, in two years. So I've, I've hit at least two a year. Um, but, you know, I'm not too deep into the logistics of, you know, exhibitions and art exhibitions and stuff like that. Um, so this will be, this will provide an interesting, uh, I guess, look into how the dynamics of uh, how dynamics work um, around uh, art exhibitions and apparently the gender dynamics in this case. Um, so let's have a look. Last week, Tate Britain uh, unveiled a complete rehang of its collection, the first time in a decade that the institution has displayed its treasures anew. The focus, women. Quote, women artists will never will be better represented than ever before, this announcement said. Half the contemporary artists on display will be women. Uh, unquote. Progress, you might think, but how has it taken until 2023 to, for women to be given such space in one of Britain's most beloved and respected museums? In historical terms, it's partly because society hasn't presented us with a vision uh, in which women own certain spaces. Take a portrait commission to show the 36 founding members of the Royal Academy of Arts in London, of whom two were women, Angelica Kaufman, Kaufman, Kaufman and Mary Moser. Instead of painting them alongside the men, who were all decked out in suits and studying a nude model, the painter Johann Zafani uh, reduced them to, uh, to two almost unrecognisable portrait busts in the corner of the room. The Royal Academy did not admit women to the life-drawing studio until the 1890s. Women's work has also been hidden from view. In 2019, a large version of The Last Supper by the nun artist Plautilla Nelly uh, from around 1568 went on view at the refectory of Santa Maria Novella, Florence, its first outing. Women have been crowded out not only on museum walls, but also in the places where they have made their made their work. When Lee Krasner uh, shared a home with her husband, Jackson Pollock, in Springs, Long Island, her studio was confined to the spare bedroom, while he had the sprawling barn. And when winter came, she was the one forced to relocate to the living room. Then there are times women's works haven't even survived. At the 1939 World's Fair in New York City, a 16-foot-high sculpture stood in its centre. Elegantly shaped like a harp, Lift Every Voice and Sing depicted 12 singing figures in floor-length robes standing in the palm of God's hand and a kneeling child. The work by Augusta Savage was commissioned to show the contribution to music by African Americans. But despite the national press coverage it earned, it was destroyed after the fair due to an inability or lack of will to fund its storage. What impact would this work have had on future generations if it had been preserved? This story makes me think about how many other works have been destroyed because they were created by or depicted people regarded as unimportant, while the works that have remained reinforce a narrative about the greatness of white men. The author Kate Moss, with the E in the end, pointed out in her book Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries that there are more statues in the UK of men named John than there are statues of women. And in Edinburgh, there are more statues of animals than named women. Last year, when I interviewed the American artist Amy Sherald, who rose to fame after painting the presidential portrait of the First Lady Michelle Obama, the first African-American woman to do so, 
She recalled the power of seeing African Americans represented in in art as a little girl. Quote, I remember thinking, I wonder what my life would feel like if every single statue that I ever walked by in all of these different public spaces looked like me. Unquote. How different our lives would be if we saw ourselves reflected on museum walls and in public spaces. Representation is key because seeing something created by someone that looks like you empowers you, makes you feel part of the conversation and encourages you to achieve the same things as them. But it also teaches us how to treat and respect those in society who may seem different from us because despite the progress of showing women's work today, it is still being sidelined, delimited and asked to be reduced in size. Any art or anyone yet is worthy of taking up space, and we must go out of our way to accommodate that, no matter our gender or background. Okay, so, um, I, I, I didn't really, I've never really actually thought about this, right? When it comes to the, (laughs) this, that, the the statue's name John Bitt made me laugh, because it's just, uh, it is a bit silly, you know, when, when that happens, um, and you'd think, right, you'd think even in something like sculpting, right, let's just stick it to sculpting since that was um, kind of heavily mentioned throughout, you'd think that the male gaze, right, which is a, um, uh, which is a, 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 what do you want to call it, um, uh, a, a concept, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to, I don't, I don't really know what to, what to call it, um, it's, a, it's a theory, there you go, so a male gaze, um, is a feminist theory, okay, so it's basically the, um, okay, I've just searched it up and Bing just gave me some information, so here we go, the male gaze is a term that describes a way of looking at and being seen in the world that empowers men and sexualizes women, it is a social construct derived from the ideologies and discourses of patriarchy, the term was first coined by feminist film theorist Laura Mulvey in her essay Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema in 1975, um, so yeah, the 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 concept and theory has you know been updated many times um, over the years um, since the seventies obviously but you know it's pretty obvious when you think about it that and when you think about um, how women are portrayed in art um, it's 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 obvious where you know the male gaze can easily when when you when you are told about the male gaze um, you are uh, you, you see it everywhere. Hopefully, if you choose to, <laughs> right? You, you should see it everywhere, because when you watch certain films and it's directed by a dude, written by a dude, or whatever, and you know, obviously, dudes are all over the spot on that when it comes to films. And then when you have a, uh, you know, the how? Why does why is the woman portrayed in that way? You know, you ask that question, you think about it critically, right? And there's actually um there's actually a uh, uh, relations that you can use obviously voyeurism which is looking at sexual pleasure um scopophilia which is pleasure from looking and obviously narcissism which is pleasure pleasure from contemplating oneself um so you know when you think about when going back to like something like sculptures you'd think that you know the the gaze would go to when the male gaze happens and a male makes a sculpture, you'd think it'd be of a woman most of the time. But as it said in the article, there's more sculptures named John. 
than fucking sculptures of women. How fascinating is that? Um, so it's not it's not applicable in this case that I guess it's um, more of narcissism that um, the male gaze uses and, and that's what they uh, go for when it comes to sculpting. You know, obviously the Statue of David and uh, all that stuff, Michelangelo, right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I say that as a bare novice of what sculpture, sculpting art is about, right? Um, but yeah, that's there, right? That's obvious. So what happens when you give women equal footing? What happens? You might get some sculptures of women, but you also might get some sculptures of men in a different fashion. Obviously, sculpting is a very intricate art form. And uh, to have a woman uh, sculpt something that is so specific, and it doesn't have to be of a man or a woman, obviously, it doesn't have to be you know, anatomy that we you know regularly think about sculpting as. It could be something different, obviously. But that representation is important um obviously when it comes to that and uh you know we see it in music especially um i see i think music is probably the most accessible when it comes to that and thinking about female gaze um we're literally about to get into poetry which is probably the most accessible art form that anybody can get into and it's very obvious when you get into poetry and when you read it um sometimes it's incredibly easy to gather whether it's a male or a female, well, whether it's a man or a woman talking about, uh, uh, you know, authoring the piece. Um, and it's the same with music, obviously. Um, maybe when it's instrumental, it's maybe the, 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 the lines are blurred. Um, you know, when it's just like, you know, just a straight up, you know, dance track or EDM or something like that, or, you know, just jazz. Jazz is fascinating uh, when it comes to that and having a female artist there. Um, is is Chelsea Carmichael who I saw you know um, across the tracks? Is her work any different um, uh, sonically um, than someone like uh, Joel Ross, for example? Right. Obviously, they have different skill sets, but you know, the gaze is what we're going for here, and it's kind of, it can it can be very it can be very blurred in some cases. Um, when you listen to jazz, you just listen to jazz. You're listening to instrumentation. You're listening to someone blow on something. Um, I don't think the work of Terrace Martin uh, instrumentally is that much... Uh, you, a woman could do that, right? <laughs> if they have the same same skill set and the same uh, whatever. When it comes... Just purely instrumentally, obviously. When it comes to, obviously, vocals and uh, and lyrics, maybe that that's where the gaze comes in. And you can think about it differently, but um, instrumentally, sonically, it could be it could be blurred, and that's why music is so great and so accessible because anybody that has the skill set can create something, can create a masterpiece in my mind. Um, but then when you comes when it comes to painting and obviously visual arts, um, film, TV, etc., the gaze is obviously very important because that's what we're doing. We're gazing. We're looking at something. We are visually eating and uh it's very it's very dependent sometimes a lot of the time i'd say on who that person is and if it is a woman doing it um in my mind it provides something that can be very different and because it's very different it elevates it you know when i get into when i get into musical artists especially and listen to how women um uh, put lyrics down on paper and put it on the track it can elevate it can elevate and it can make it unique it can make it something that a man can't do 
and that's why it's important that that little bit where it's important to have that variety because males the male gaze can't succeed at everything and what is art if we can't eat as much variety as possible and experience as much variety as possible so um, yeah it's taken until 2023 for some form of equality uh, for men and women in one space but um, obviously that requires uh, the whole the whole landscape requires uh, some work uh, to this day So hop into our second art topic, and this is all about poetry, which I did mention that we're going to get into, and here we are getting into it. Um, so, uh, so this is uh, by Shivani uh, Dubey, Dubey, I'm going to say that, and uh, it's by Vice, uh, which are, I'm surprised it still exists. <laughs> it obviously went bankrupt, the file of bankruptcy recently. Um, it's called Bad Poetry is Everywhere. Unfortunately, people love it. Um, and this, you know, as soon as you get, into, as soon as we get into this, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but you know, well, let's 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 not let's tease it. Let's tease it. I'm just going to tease it right there. Carry on. Let's uh, let's give it a read. Poetry is an art form art form built on nuance. In the past, people thought of it as the kind of thing with hidden depths, meaning subtext, something that appreciative readers felt touched them deeply. You never really understood a poem at first glance. Maybe that was the beauty of it. But over the decades. Something changed. Today, much of the verse we see, especially on social media, feels simple. Downright simplistic, even. Goodbye, nuance. Farewell, rereading and reflection. Hello, shitty, maudlin poems that scan like live, laugh, love for the TikTok generation. Now, bad poetry is everywhere. Overlaid across day-in-the-life videos in god-awful affirmation Instagram posts and decorating-framed Etsy prints excuse me, and twee bookmarks. They're even in bank commercials and Coke ads. Call it the rupee core effect. Core? Core? I'm going to say core. Rupee core effect. Uh, the 30-year-old Indian-Canadian's poetry started gaining traction after 2014 when she exploded onto the literary scene with her self-published poetry collection, Milk and Honey. It became a New York Times bestseller in 2017 and has been a staple there ever since. Though Core's work was, though Core's work was critiqued by many, from the get-go, it was, at one point in the 2010s, impossible to escape Instagram or Snapchat stories featuring her poetry. It's artfully placed, but basic lines uh, easily passed by the average English-language reader. Slotting easily between Instagram posts of wellness smoothies and influencers channeling goopy Gwyneth Paltrowness. Best of all, they're short. Each poem in Milk and Honey averaged around three to five lines. Quote, I believe we've seen a shift towards oversimplification in poetry because of our increasingly limited attention spans, says Dominique Middleton, uh, author and associate strategist at the content firm, content, uh, uh, code word agency. If the whole poem can't fit in a one-by-one Instagram frame, a tweet, or within a 30-second TikTok, it likely will miss fame. I think it's a full-on culture shift to which poetry has also acclimated, unquote. Minimalism, often referenced but rarely understood, might be part of the reason why people are drawn to these short poems. Their brevity is equated with minimalist chicness, 
the the poetic equivalent of the clean girl aesthetic, though few of these basic verses have much to do with the artistic abstraction that's key to minimalism. Quote, The oversimplification corresponds directly with the fact that poetry can now be instantly produced and shared in front of a ready audience, says Naima Rashid, author, poet, and brand strategist. Since numbers are all that matter here, the minute you have anyone, whether discerning or not, consuming it and considering it poetry, you have a following. In a cycle of ease and access, the barrier to entry is lowered. Any form of quality check is naturally thrown out of the equation. Before the advent of social media, it was relatively difficult for up-and-coming poets to access publishers and gain success. Now, thousands of people share their work on TikTok under poetry, hashtag poetry community and hashtag poetry is not dead. Suddenly, anyone can, can post their creations online and call themselves a poet. This seeming decrim- de- democratization uh, of, the word, of the poetry world has, however, led to the rise of some pretty terrible poetry, especially on TikTok. New gen poets like Eliza Grace have grown increasingly popular while simultaneously being accused of plagiarism. And this reductive style of poetry is bleeding into other parts of pop culture, not least in the seemingly endless streams of spoken word slam poetry infused advertisements. Many new gen social media poets follow the formats used so successfully by Core, breaking up basic sentences into digestible digestible phrases, spacing them oddly on the page or, or screen, and using italics and bold type to suggest intricacy and thoughtfulness. Another quote. I think bad poetry gets further today and seems more prevalent because of the ease of internet self-publishing and independent publishing options, says Leah Nicole Bailey, a secondary school teacher and poet. But I can't see it as a bad thing since this game ease, this this same ease means we hear disadvantaged, marginalised or otherwise unknown voices I never would have had the chance to otherwise. Art in any form is always going to be subjective, unquote. Another quote, uh, the issue isn't that young poets are sharing their writing online, it's that their work is shared in a vacuum, explains Yasmin Belkir, um, a writer, literary editor and founder of literary magazine Winter Tangerine. I'd say that the, I love that name, Winter Tangerine, that sounds great. Uh, I'd say that the majority of poetry being written and shared on social media today exists outside of the context of living literary tradition which doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be terrible, but rather that these poets have no guidance, no inspiration, and no nuance, unquote. Compact and emotionally simplistic poems are nothing new. Haikus have been around since the 17th century and are still some of the simplest forms of poetry to this day. The problem with the cringe poetry that being pumped out online uh, is that the work is unspecific and, absolutely ha- and has absolutely nothing unique to say land to a point where anyone could find it relatable. Relatability isn't a bad thing in itself, but if it comes at the cost of a poem actually saying anything, then what's the point? Quote uh, from Belkir. Um, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, by the way. Belkir. Uh, Poetry is appealing because it's a medium for unadulterated self-expression, but these poems aren't emotionally vulnerable at all. They're not saying anything. There's nothing at stake. There's no emotional vulnerability. This is not to say that people need to rip their hearts out for this, for their art or share all the personal elements of their lives. But unspecific poems offer nothing to the reader. Everyone has felt sad, but when you're writing a poem about sadness, you should be answering what sadness feels like to you. 
Saying I was sad once doesn't tell the reader anything. It doesn't offer any new angles or interpretations or understandings of sadness. Belkia stresses that there's absolutely nothing wrong with writing bad poetry. That takes time to perfect, just like any other art form. The problem occurs when emotionally lazy, simplistic poetry becomes not just a standard, but the only kind of poetry gained attention, when it becomes nothing more than just adding line breaks to vaguely emotive sentences. It's not just social media platforms pumping out endless reams of emotionally vacant poetry. Industry gatekeepers have dollar signs in their eyes too. Quote from Belkir again. Media literacy is in the toilet, and it appears the publishing industry as a whole is in a race to the bottom in their misguided attempts to raise profits by appealing to the broadest possible demographic possible. What? Broadest possible demographic possible. That's, that, that just freaked me the fuck out. I thought I was going mad. Uh, <laughs> this means that not only is bland, uninteresting poetry being shared endlessly across social media, it's also being relentlessly peddled to the masses by publishing execs with dollar signs in their eyes, unquote. Still, posts like Rashid are not too worried about this change. Even if they're happy to call out the bastardization of the craft, it simply means poets have more avenues to express themselves in. Another quote, This is a natural evolution of things and literary genres become more popular, taking on the everyman flavour, she shrugs. Simply put, there are many quality lanes now, from uh, cringeworthy to mediocre to excellent. There are more options and more practitioners now. You just have to pick your lane and your people. Unquote. And um, I kind of liken this to, you know, music, right? When when you have the ability, when I have the ability to make a song, make a account on, make an artist account on Spotify, and put my shit on Spotify, right? When I can do that in the space of a day, you're gonna get some shit. You're gonna get. There's gonna be a groundswell of shit. Okay, it is what it is. You're gonna find some shit, and some of that shit might get. Excuse me, might get a record deal. <laughs> Some of that shit might get a record deal. Some of that shit might get on the charts. Some of that shit might just be ubiquitous as fuck for years to come. Okay, it is what it is. Um, this is why I don't. I've uh, after you know a certain time period. Time period. I just um, I stopped caring about what charts gave. You know, what I mean, I I, st- I stopped caring about who's on the charts. Stopped caring about any of that. Um, I stopped caring about films that are, you know, obviously the film film industry is a bit different in terms of, you know, obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's more music out than films out, right? And that's just, um, you know, you know, a case of how quickly how quick it can be to make a song, uh, in in uh, in comparison to making a film. But you know what I mean? On average, right? Um, I don't care about, I don't go to see every blockbuster film out there. I don't, I don't, I really don't. Um, I like, I mean, I went to see uh, Return to Soul, which I didn't, exp- which I didn't actually say until, uh, well, until now, but, um, uh, that was an amazing film. I saw that in BFI, uh, Southbank, and I really enjoyed myself. I really enjoyed the film. It was very interesting, very layered and very nuanced, um, and a very unique story. It's a story that I've never actually heard before, but anyway, it's an interesting film and you're not going to see that film in the Odeon. You're not going to see that film in Cineworld. You're just not. Um, and you know that's unfortunate it's, it's crap but it is what it is and you're going to see crap poetry in the easiest places you're going to see crap poetry on Instagram and Twitter but you know it takes effort like in anything it takes effort to find what you like it takes effort to find good shit 
all the time. I don't care what you say. The good shit ain't on the charts. The good shit don't gross a billion dollars all the time, okay? The good shit, you have to find it. It's the same with music. It's the same with film. And now, unfortunately, it's the same with poetry. It is what it is. Um, I get what they're talking about, and I probably agree that there is some just shit poetry. I don't, I'm not really a poetry person. Um, you know what I mean? I don't really, don't really read poetry that deep. Um, but if um, it, it's 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 accessible, music is accessible. Poetry is probably more accessible for someone to just type up five lines of of meaningless bullshit. And then getting 20,000 likes off it. You just... I, I, I can't... I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. It is what it is. Like, um, you know, there's some crap music out there. That for some reason charts. It is what it is. But if you if you rate the art form enough. If you respect the art form enough. And you feel like you have a good faith love in it. You will find the good... You will find the good stuff. That you consider the good stuff. You will find that. It just takes a little longer now. That's all it is. It just takes a little longer to find the good shit. And it takes a lot less time to find dumb shit. Okay, let's finish um, with life, and uh, this is a topic that um, I'm I'm kind of always always I'm always talking about it in some fashion, uh, whether it is to you know to friends or family. Um, it's just it always comes up uh, work wise. It always comes up for me. Um, just chrono- uh, was it chrono- chronology chrono chrono. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, waking up right? It's just uh, when you wake up, how you, how how your energy uh, goes throughout the day, um, stuff like that. And uh, for me, I always wait. I I sleep through mornings and I work through the night. That's how I. That's simply put, simply how I how I live. And uh, it's 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 me. It's different from most people. Um, most people up in the mornings and it is what it is right. Um, I'm just not a morning person. I've never have been. I go to school every day, um, you know, back in the day, and I always went to school tired of shit. I went to university lectures tired of shit, always needed like a Red Bull, just something to just keep me up, um, and, uh, you know, some food along, go along with it, right? I just always needed that to actually just get through the first few hours of the day. Um, I wasn't drinking Red Bull in primary school, by the way, just so you know, like, you know what I mean, just I'm talking about university specifically, um, but still, I, ne- I just... <sighs> going through high school and primary school just being tired it was just I just felt tired um it's just not my steez um but yeah I found this article talking about it and I thought it'd be fun to talk about it since I keep fucking talking about it in the day-to-day um this is by Brian Resnick uh via Vox and it's called if you're not just not a morning person science says you may never be and I'm fine with that I'm fine with that you know what I mean uh, the world doesn't revolve around me um, especially when it comes to uh, my sleep pattern. <laughs> so it is what it is. So let's jump in. If Cassidy Sokolis um, ever needs to wake up for 11am, she scatters three alarm clocks throughout her bedroom. Even then, she still often sleeps through the clamour. It's really frustrating, Sokolis, a 21-year-old junior at Northern Arizona University, tells me. People have mocked me for it, saying how lazy I am, 
that I'm not that I'm not trying hard enough. That really bothers me because it's my brain's fault, not mine. A college student would say that, but her doctors say it isn't just an excuse. When she was 19, Sakos was diagnosed with delayed sleep phase, a disorder that sets her internal clock permanently out of sync with the rest of the world. It's not that she needs more sleep than the average person, it's just that her body prefers to begin at a 7 or 8 hour cycle after 3am. While she's still a college student, Sakolis can start her day at 11am, thanks to a flexible class schedule. But now she's nearing graduation, and she's worried her unusual schedule will get in the way of her dream of becoming a teacher, a profession with notoriously early start times. Quote, if it's between changing my career and finding a way to make it work, I'm definitely going to have to find a way to make it work, she says. Unquote. So Colis is on the far end of the bell curve of human sleep habits. We have all we all have a preferred inborn time for sleeping. Science has validated the idea that there are morning people, evening people, and those in between. These are called chronotypes. That's the one. That's the one. That's the one I was looking for. Chronotypes. And just like uh, and just like it's rare for a person to be seven feet tall. It's rare for Sokolis to not be able to sleep until 3am. We all have a chronotype, just like we all have a height. Even people who are slightly more oriented to the evening, people who uh, would like to sleep between 1am and 9am, say, may be faced with a difficult choice. Listen to your body or force it to match the sleep habits of most, uh, of most everyone else. Research has been gaining insight on that question. It turns out our internal clocks are influenced by genes and are incredibly difficult to change. If you're just not a morning person, it's like you'll never be, at least until the effects of aging kick in. Ah, oh, fuck. And what's more, if we try to live out of sync with these clocks, our health likely suffers. The mismatch between internal time and real-world time has been linked to heart disease, obesity, and depression. This all amounts to a case, not an absolute case, but a compelling one nonetheless, that we should all listen to our bodies and not the alarm clocks. Preach. Uh, most people, around 30-50%, to 50%, fall right in the middle of the chronotype bell curve, sleeping between the hours of 11pm and 7am. Another 40% are either slightly morning people, or slightly evening people, off by an hour or so. People like Sokolis are even more rare. Only 0.2%, 1 out of 500, of, all, of adults have a delayed sleep phase like Sokolis. The condition is much more common among teens, whose clocks gradually shift earlier as they age. A few more adults, 1%, have advanced sleep phase syndrome and prefer to go to sleep around 8pm, according to the American Sleep Association. Uh, society tends to be more forgiving of them. To understand why some, of, uh, why some people are early birds while others are night owls, let's consider the body's circadian rhythm uh, system. It's usually rhythm system. The body is an orchestra of organs, each providing an essential function. In this metaphor, the circadian rhythm, there you go, is a conductor. Listen to this NPR story for a cool musical version of it. I'm good, thank you. Uh, the most important thing to know about the circadian system is that it just it doesn't just control when we're sleepy. Uh, quote, every neurotransmitter, hormone, uh, and chemical in the body cycles with the daily rhythm. Uh, Philip German, a sleep researcher and clinician at the University of Pennsylvania, tells me. It's not just humans, even single-cell organisms follow circadian rhythm. It really seems to be a fundamental property of life. Funny enough, um, there's actually a Vox episode um, called Explained on Netflix that you can watch, and uh, there's one about sleep um, that is a really good... Uh, it's kind of this article in a nutshell. Um, I highly recommend you watch that because it's actually um, really fascinating, and it's only 20 minutes long, so it's um, you know, a nice, nice little chunk of your day. Uh, our bodies run this tight schedule, 
to try to keep up with our actions. <clears throat> Since we usually eat a meal after waking up, we produce the most insulin in the morning. We're primed to metabolize uh, breakfast before even taking a bite. It's more efficient that way. For people who are either more morning-oriented or evening-oriented, everything the circadian system controls is delayed. Evening types on average get down to their lowest core body temperature later than normal. Leon Lack, who studies circadian rhythms at Flinders University in Australia, tells me in an email, their circadian system doesn't start producing sleepiness until later or alertness until later. They also release, uh, that's an unquote, they, release, or they also release cortisol, the stress hormone, later than average. Most people hit their peak alertness around 10am. Evening type people can hit theirs uh, hours later. Me, it's me! Uh, some extreme night owls gather on Reddit to discuss the unique challenges of being out of sync with the world. That's where I found Sokolis and several others, including Cat Park, who were re- willing to share their personal stories. Mainly I wanted to know what it feels like to be on a schedule mismatched with the rest of the world. Quote, when I wake up in the morning, it's like I'm fighting horse tranquilizers, <laughs> says Park, a 34-year-old healthcare administrator who lives in Overland Park, Kansas. If she had it her way, she'd fall asleep around 3am and wake up around noon. You're also subject to uh, judgment if you're groggy when others are at their peak, Park and others said. People don't believe me, she says, of, par- uh, of past interactions with employers and family. They thought I was out partying all night, that I had a drinking problem or a drug problem or, just, or was just lazy. And it was none of those things, unquote. For Amy, a 26-year-old Seattle resident, being a delayed sleeper means, there's a uh, quote, there's a lot of emotional baggage tied up to be uh, tied up to going to work, she says. You're arriving later. You feel like you're not actually present. When people ask you questions, you give stupid answers. Uh, then weekends become, become a time for catching up on sleep, not leisure. It's a terrible cycle, she says. Our clock, uh, quote, our clocks don't run exactly on a 24-hour cycle, German says. They're closer to 24.3 hours. So every day our body clocks need to wind backward by just a little bit to stay on schedule. For the most part, the sun takes care of this. Exposure to bright light stimulates the brain's master clock. The super key, super, chiasmatic uh, nucleus uh, to wind back those three tenths of an hour. I can't speak. With night owls, a few things get in the way of the, this resetting process. Number one is genes. The suprachismatic nucleus, please don't, don't make me say that several times, is the body's master clock. But it isn't the only one. Every single cell of the body has clock genes. Uh, bits of DNA that flip on and off throughout the day. Like the body as a whole, the cell's metabolism is scheduled for efficiency. Clock genes regulate the expression of uh, between 5 and 20% of all, other, all the other genes in the cell. The expression of these genes is believed uh, to feed back into bo- the body's master clock and help set its time. Scientists have found that small variations in these genes lead to earlier or later rhythms in animals and are beginning to identify the genes that cause the same effects in humans. Because its genetic chronotype is inheritable, twin and hereditary studies have uh, found that uh, about, about half, of, half the difference in chronotypes can be explained by genetics. Number two, how these genes push people uh, earlier or later is imprecisely known. One thought is that evening type people may have a body clock uh, that runs longer than average. Evening types uh, clocks can run as long as 24.5 or 24.7 hours, German says. A longer clock means the suprachiasmatic nucleus, I hate saying that word, it's so long, 
has to work harder to make an adjustment when it fails to readjust sleep times drift later and later into the evening. Number three, layer types may be more sensitive to light exposure at night. Bright light any time of the day tells our bodies it's time to be awake. This wasn't a problem back in olden times when the setting of the sun ended light exposure for the day. In modern times, light from our computers, televisions, and some even type people stay the uh, pushes peaks, pushes some even type people stay awake longer. Yep, <laughs> I've done a few all nighters in my life. Uh, once these chronotypes are set, they're frustratingly stubborn. Quote: Our feeling at this point is that they these are probably unchangeable characteristics. Like says, the only exception is when we age, as the decades pass, our clocks tend to shift earlier. Scientists have a term for being out of sync, social jet lag. It's a social nuisance for the people who have it, but also puts stress on the body that may undermine health. In a tightly controlled uh, lab study, 24 healthy participants who had their sleep shifted by one hour each day, simulating jet lag, started to look pre- uh, pre-diabetic after a three-week trial. Their resting metabolic, met- metabolic rates yeah, uh, dropped 8%. Quote, Assuming no changes in activity or food intake, that would translate into 12.5 pounds increase in weight over a single year. The study published in Science Translational Medicine in 2012 concluded, When people experience social jet lag, they often try to make up for the sleep debt on the weekends. But this is too jarring. But this too is jarring, sorry, for the body and makes waking up on Monday all the more difficult. In 2012, researchers in Europe analysed a self-report data set of 65,000 Europeans and found, quote, social jet lag significantly increased the probability of belonging to the group of overweight participants, unquote. There's also correlational research indicating that the late chronotypes may be at greater risk for depression and, uh, and that they're more likely to engage in risky behaviours like smoking. It's the hypothesis here isn't a chronotype inherently causes the negative outcomes, but rather a mismatch of chronotype and daily schedule do. Uh, how long do I have left this article? Oh my gosh, a lot. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move ahead a little bit and just uh, finish up with the last few paragraphs. Okay, simply put, societies favour early risers. We know, I know, for fuck's sake. Think no further than phrases like the early bird catches the worm. Getting an official diagnosis can help lift the burden from people on a different clock. Quote, it really helps uh, to know it isn't my fault, Sokolis said of her diagnosis, but people like her are still left with a hard choice. The best paying jobs die in the morning. Educational opportunities do too. Can they really afford to miss out on everything that happens before noon? The delayed sleep phase sufferers I spoke to all agreed. The one thing they wished for was greater tolerance of people like them. Quote, sometimes one of the helpful things I do for people is give them permission to follow LA schedule, Gurman says, of his clinical practice. But there's an attitude in our culture that there's something wrong with that. And yeah, I just think that, you know, just accommodate, man. Accommodate. Uh, There's people that just don't, that just don't operate on mornings. I, I don't. I really don't. Even today, I woke up like, um, I woke up at like 12-ish, got my day started, um, I'm recording at this time around 5pm, and uh, you know, um, I'm alright, I'm cool, I'm, get, I'm I'm doing stuff, right, I'm getting stuff done, um, but I don't truly lock in until like, let's just say like 9pm, like from 9 till 1, I'm just locked in, like it's crazy, uh, it doesn't make sense, but I'm really locked in then, I can lock in the rest of the, I can lock in during the afternoon as well, right, like I have been today, right, 
um, just doing stuff. But yeah, they're just uh, I'm just I'm just really locked in just when the sun goes down, and uh, that's weird. It's weird, I know, but uh, it is what it is, and um, I feel like uh, you know I've I've been kind of lucky in that sense that um, the stuff I do um, doesn't require waking up in the morning, um, but you know maybe one day it require it and you know there's sometimes where i do wake up in the morning uh, for whatever reason and i can do it i just rather not you know it's not that it's not as deep as uh, mr colis in the in in the article where you know i need three alarms i'm good give me one alarm and two hours before i have to leave the house i'm i'm good to go honestly like by the by those two hours i'm good to go but it just takes me a while it just takes me a while to just you know swipe the cobwebs out of my face um and just get going um but that's just to, that's just to get out of the house and actually just move um if you want me to actually like you know be active then yeah it gets don't wake me up in the morning that's, that's what it is it just that's how that's how i operate but anyway shout out to the shout out to the shout out to the night owls big ups yourselves um uh, we are just a, we are just outcasts in this in this early riser world apparently and with that said, I'll finish there. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth Home Podcast Network, I've been Chai Tone, this has been What's Good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chop Music for the bits to use. Uh, to use. You can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Friend of Five, Ian Happy Hire for the bits to use, Charismatic for the interview. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you have a good week. I should always try to do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.